Good morning. It is wonderful to be with you today. Thank you for having us. Uh, let me send greetings to you all from the brothers and sisters in Christ at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. Uh, it is great to be with you today to see some familiar faces and, and friends who are here and to get to enjoy what the Lord is doing here among your congregation. What a wonderful morning of fellowship we've had already together, singing God's praise, expressing our dependence on Him in prayer, hearing His Word read, and enjoying this time around God's Word as brothers and sisters in Christ. So thank you for welcoming us. It is good to see you today. I hope to meet you if I don't know you already uh, after the service. I want to ask this morning, is anyone in charge of the universe? Is anyone in charge? And if so, does he care about me? It's one of those timeless questions people have been pondering for centuries. Is anyone in charge and does he care? And I, I think if you were to go up to folks on the street of Arlington and ask them that question, is anyone in charge of the universe and does he care about you? You might receive four basic answers, four different kinds of responses. First would be the person who says, no one's in charge and no one really cares, right? This is the skeptic and the cynic is the person who says, we're all really just the product of pure chance. So you've got to construct your own meaning in this vicious life and just try to survive. Second, you might come across somebody who says, well, God is there and he seems to care about us, but he's probably not really in charge of everything. This is a person who imagines that God is maybe like a cosmic watchmaker. You know, he sets up the mechanisms, he winds up the gears, but then he sort of retreats back into his own private movie theater to watch history unfold. Yes, he, he cares about us, but really from afar. Uh, this is the person who says maybe God is a benevolent force. Uh, he provides some good to the world, but he doesn't really control everyday affairs in history. Or third, you might meet someone who says, well, there's clearly a divine being in charge of everything that happens, but he doesn't seem to care at all, at least not about me. This person looks at the wars and the genocides of history. They think about the storms and the diseases that afflict life on this planet, and they assume that God must be cold, maybe even indifferent or even reckless. Well, I wonder if any of these three views I've listed off so far is your perspective today. What do you think about God? Uh, this isn't just an abstract question for a college philosophy class. Uh, across cultures and eras, people seem to have this question gnawing at their hearts. Is there someone out there that I can turn to? Is there someone who's in control, who, who really cares about me? And in fact, if there is a God who's in charge of the universe who really does love us, I wonder if he has put this question in our hearts so that we would seek for him. And that leads to the fourth person that you might meet on the streets of Arlington, the person who tells you, yes, there is someone in charge and he really truly cares. In fact, he cares more than we might even be able to fathom. That's the message of our psalm for this morning, Psalm 147. So if you want to grab your Bible and turn with me to Psalm 147, we are going to be studying this text 
today. The Psalms are right in the middle of the Bible, so if you're not familiar with the Bible, just open up toward the middle and flip around a little bit until you find the book of Psalms. And each Psalm has a big number that you'll see there in the Bible, and we're on Psalm number 147. The Psalms were the song book of Israel. They gave expression to every facet of the nation's relationship to God, from confession of their sin and lament over the sufferings of this life to thanksgiving and joy. And ultimately, the predominant posture that we see in the book of Psalms is one of praise. And when we turn to the last five Psalms, that's where this inspired hymnal really culminates in a crescendo of adoration and exaltation of God. So you just scan your eyes over Psalms 146 to 150. These last five Psalms all begin and end with the same phrase. You see it there. For example, in Psalm 146, praise the Lord. If you look at the last three words of the psalm, you see the same phrase, praise the Lord. In the Hebrew, hallelujah, praise, yah, the Lord. And each of these five final psalms ends and begins that way. These are psalms of praise. So who is this God and why should we praise him? Listen as I read for us Psalm 147. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. His delight is not in the strength of a horse nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion, for he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of the wheat. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. Here's a phrase that sums up the whole psalm. This is our, our big idea this morning. We should praise God for his strong comfort, his sustaining care, and his sovereign command. And those will be the three points that we follow today. We should praise God for his strong comfort, his sustaining care, and his sovereign command. This psalm depicts all of us as totally needy 
and it depicts God as totally sufficient for all our needs and calls us to praise God. Why should we praise him? Number one, we praise him for his strong comfort. And that's what we see in verses one to six. The psalmist begins by telling us to praise the Lord. Why? He says it is good to sing praises to our God. So what does this word praise mean? Here's a definition for us. To praise God is to declare with delight his unsurpassed value and his exalted authority. To praise God is to declare with delight his unsurpassed value and his exalted authority. That's what we see them doing here. Praise involves our hearts and involves our voices. And it is pleasant, he says. It's fitting. It's appropriate. It's not just a duty, but it's a delight. So if you were to sit around and think about who God is and all that he's done to decide not to praise him, would be sort of like a, a groom on his wedding day, looking at his beautiful bride and just deciding, I'm not going to compliment her. I'm not going to tell her how beautiful she is or how wonderful her, her dress is. It, it, you, you wouldn't exactly want to do that on your wedding day and make that call. When we understand who God is, the natural response is one of awe and wonder. Uh, if you're new here and you've ever wondered, why would a Christian church sing five or six whole songs together in, in, in a gathering on a Sunday morning, as we've done. Did you notice how many verses there were in Amazing Grace? We've recaptured some of the old verses that have been forgotten. Why do we sing all these verses and all these hymns together? Why do Christians do that? But here you have your answer. Because we love to. It's a joy to express these truths to God in song. Not just like each of us individually praising God, but look, he calls him our God. Isn't there something powerful about hearing the voices of the redeemed as we all praise him together? Well, that's what's going on in this psalm. And the psalmist goes on and gives us reasons why God's worthy of praise. Look at verses 2 and 3. We praise him because the Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Well, we don't know exactly when this psalm was written, but it appears to be around the time that Israel returned to the promised land after decades of exile in Babylon. So if you're not all that familiar with the grand storyline of the Old Testament, there's two major events in the Old Testament that mark Israel's history. There are two monuments. First is the Exodus. That's when God miraculously delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt. And then the second event that you see is the exile, when God, because of his people's sin and their unfaithfulness to him, he sends them out of the promised land into captivity. And exile was awful. We see, if you just read the prophets, read Jeremiah, read Hosea, you can see the pain and sorrow and suffering that exiles experienced in captivity because of their sin against God. Yet exile wasn't the end of the story. Seventy years after the people were kicked out of their land, God brought those who trusted in him back. He renewed a remnant and brought them back to their land. You can read about this in Ezra or Nehemiah, where, as we see in verse 2 of our psalm, the Lord, through these leaders, built up Jerusalem again. So we've got to imagine these exiles. They're hobbling back to a Jerusalem in ruins their hearts are broken over the nation's prior sin. You see this broken-hearted, verse 3. They have wounds, both physical and spiritual, because they've been in exile. 
their heads are hanging low, but God hasn't forsaken them. No, he welcomes them back. He doesn't just forgive those who trust in him. He consoles them with his presence and with his promises. And so the psalmist says, God's worthy of praise. He is a God who comforts exiles who return to him. I wonder, what are your wounds? And where are you looking for relief? Uh, The picture these verses give us is not of a God who's far off, uh, distant, disinterested in your wounds, as if he were watching us sort of through the thick glass of the operating room. This is a God who is is near. Uh, This is a God who himself is the surgeon and who applies his scalpel gently to heal our deepest wounds, especially the wounds of our own sin against him. I have a two-year-old daughter, and sometimes we'll be over at the playground, and she'll be running and energetic and doing all this stuff, and then all of a sudden she falls and she skins her knee. And this is like crisis moment in the, in the life of a two-year-old. And what does she do? She instinctively knows that she needs to go somewhere for comfort and for relief. She doesn't run to the other kids. She doesn't really even run to the other parents. She knows that she runs to me. She jumps in my arms and wants me to kiss her knee and, you know, do whatever I can to to comfort her. She instinctively comes to me because she has experienced my strength as her father. Well, if these exiles can find their comfort by returning to the strong arms of a covenant God who loves them, even in spite of sin, in spite of years of darkness and exile, that is the God that we should run to as well for the wounds of this life. And that's why the psalmist encourages both them and us by reminding them of God's wisdom and strength. This is a God we can turn to. Look at verse 4. This is a God who determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. In other words, God is the sovereign ruler of the universe. If he puts every galaxy in place, then of course he has the knowledge and the strength to care for me and for you. So how many stars are we talking here? Uh, Let me ask the kids uh, here, what's the highest number you've ever tried counting to? Have you ever just tried to count and count and count, maybe like on a long car ride, see how high you can get? Or or have you ever gone outside at night and tried to count all the stars you can see? Just start at one corner and, you know, try to keep track of the ones you've already counted and then see how many more you can count, maybe, you know, put a tally on a piece of paper. Scientists estimate there are 300 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy alone. And they estimate, I got all this from the internet, so if there's any scientists here, you know, correct me, but the estimate is about 100 billion galaxies in the universe, which yields, if my math is right, an estimate of a three with 22 zeros after it. All right? I can't even fathom that number. I don't know how to pronounce what that number would technically be called. And yet God not only made that many stars, he named them all, he knows them all, he oversees them all like a general commanding a vast army. It's no wonder the psalmist says in verse 5, Great is our Lord, abundant in power, his understanding is beyond measure. In other words, this is a God you can trust. This is a God who knows the names of 300 gazillion stars. He knows your name. He is mighty to bind up your wounds. But notice, not everyone experiences his sweet comfort. Look at verse 6. The Lord lifts up 
the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Each of the three sections in our psalm we're going to look at ends with a contrast. Contrast between those who experience God's good comfort and those who don't. And here we see the wicked, which by the Bible, when it uses the term wicked, means those who persist in living life as if they are king, rather than submitting to God's kingship. The wicked can't depend on God's kindness. It's only the humble who know him as comforter, which, of course, should make us all want to ask ourselves, who am I, right? Am I the wicked or am I the humble? And if I think of myself as humble, why would I think of myself that way? To answer this question, I want us to zoom out and think about the whole story of the Bible. Who are the true humble? Who are the wicked? And what we see is that this idea of exile isn't just an event that happened in Israel's history. The Bible teaches in a spiritual sense we are all exiles. Think back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. When they sinned against God, when they committed the first act of disobedience against God's law and his rule, what did God do? He expelled them from the garden. He put them, as it were, into exile, away from his special presence. And all of us have followed in Adam and Eve's steps. We may not have committed the exact same sin that they committed, but we've all, in various ways, and daily, we've fallen short of God's glory. We've gone against his good rule and his good standards for us. And in that sense, we do not deserve to be in the presence of a God who is radically good and pure and holy. Psalm 5.4 says, You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. So how can people like us who have been wicked have any hope of entering into the good fellowship of a God that is perfectly pure like this? Well, as we continue through the pages of Scripture, we see that's why God sent Jesus, His Son. Jesus dwelled with us to make us fit to dwell with Him. He did that by living the perfect life of obedience none of us have lived. And by offering His life as a sacrifice on the cross, as a substitute in the place of all who would turn from their sins and trust in Him. On the cross, Jesus was exiled from God's presence so that we might be welcomed in. He was made an outcast from God so that we might be made sons and daughters. He was forsaken that we might be forgiven. And his death wasn't the end of the story. Three days later, he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death and paving the way to the presence of the Father for all who would turn from their sin and trust in him. That is the hope that you can have this morning. Leave your sin behind. Leave behind this life that the Bible calls wicked of being your own master and your own God and determining your own life and instead trust in Jesus. Submit to Him. And that is who the humble are. They're those who turn from their sin and trust in Christ and are received into the presence of God. No more exile. So, brothers and sisters, we should praise God, as our psalm calls us to, for the great comfort that he gives us of forgiving our sins and receiving us out of exile into his presence. And here's the thing. If, if God has done that for you, if you know Christ and he's forgiven your sins, 
we can trust him to heal every other wound that we experience as well. This is a God who delights in restoring broken marriages. A God who delights in restoring wounded friendships. A God who delights to show himself sufficient when the wounds of unemployment or loneliness or depression or sickness weigh in upon us. And we trust him because he's already provided our greatest need. So God comforts us by redeeming us from our spiritual exile and by soothing us in each trial of this life. Those aren't the only reasons that we praise him. We praise him for his strong comfort, but also, number two, we praise him for his sustaining care. His sustaining care. It's not just that God saves us. He also sustains us. Look at verse 7. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. Each section of this psalm starts with a fresh call to praise. And here we see that our praise includes thanksgiving. So when the redeemed praise God, they always sing in the key of gratitude. We see the lyre mentioned. And because the priests were instructed to play the lyre at the temple, we, in terms of Psalm 147, this praise is probably taking place at the rebuilt temple. Now there is no more physical temple. Instead, we as the people of God are his temple where he dwells. And what a wonderful picture it is when folks of all walks of life, of different cultures and ethnicities, raise our voices together in harmony. That's a picture of our unity in Christ. Similar to how these various uh, Israelites who trusted in God would have gathered around his presence at the temple to the sound of the lyre. Well, why should we praise him? Look at verses 8 and 9. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. Remember in the ancient world, if it didn't rain, you didn't eat. And so every day was a day of dependence on God and waiting on him. Every bite that we ever enjoy is a gift from his generous hand. Remember what Jesus said, right? Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? Luke 12. These verses are, are teaching us uh, what in theological terms is called God's providence. His providence. He provides for, sustains, and governs every molecule of his creation. He cares for all creatures in his common grace. We see that even with the animals here in these, these verses. And he cares especially for his chosen and redeemed people. Uh, some Christians in the past, hundreds of years ago, summarized this idea beautifully in a document that's called the Heidelberg Catechism. They give great expression to this. Here's what they said. Question. What do you understand by the providence of God? Okay, here's their answer. Answer. The almighty and ever-present power of God by which God upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, 
but by his fatherly hand. All things come to us not by chance, but by God's decree, by his providence. Now, a natural question, of course, that lots of folks have about this is, what about when people get sick or or they starve or or they die? What what about that even happens to a Christian? Can that happen? Has God's providence failed a believer at that point? What we have to remember is that although God does govern all things by his providence, he still ordains that we live out the rest of our days in this fallen world. It's a world where people, all of us, will die eventually because death is the consequence for Adam and Eve's sin. So sickness and starvation flow from the effects of the curse on creation that we see in Genesis 3. Now for all who are in Christ, God has removed the judgment we deserve for our sin. Praise God. But yet he has still ordained that we live out our days in this world until we finally come home, where the curse of death is no more. And in his providence, he sustains us for every moment that we live here. Every single breath we take is a gift from him. And he is the one who determines the number of our days. That is beyond our wisdom to grasp of how long my life's going to be. And it can be mysterious. And yet God in his wisdom is the one who plans each moment. Sometimes the final way that God provides for a hungry believer is actually not by giving them another earthly meal, but instead taking them home to heaven where the banquet supper of the lamb never ends, where that table overflows. And that's an act of God's providence too. To live is Christ and yet to die is gain, as we even thought about in the, in the Sunday school hour this morning. That is part of God's providence when he takes us home at the end of the days that he has ordained for us. And we get to feast with the lamb. And that hope in that final day leads us to the contrast we see at the end of this section. So look at verses 10 and 11 where he says God's delight is not in the strength of a horse nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. There may be a military reference going on here. The strength of the horse would be the cavalry and the legs of the man, the infantry. And we know Israel was tempted often to trust in the armies of other nations rather than trusting in God. And of course, we're just like them in that. Let me ask you, where are you tempted to trust for your sense of security and control in this hectic life? Is it the strength of your resume or your connections or your job? Is it the strength of your family or who you know? The strength of someday getting your preferred politician into office? Uh, Perhaps the strength that you want you don't have and so you feel weak in the world's eyes and it it makes life difficult. What about the strength of bodily health? Uh, in 2008, so what is that, nine years ago now, I attempted to run the Chicago Marathon. And uh, let's just say that the legs of a man, at least the legs of this man, I don't know if God really designed them to go 26.2 miles, uh, at least not very fast. Uh, so I learned that day that my body is frail. And I did cross the finish line, but I, it was only because of my good friend, ibuprofen, 
uh, which I took way too much of, so that I didn't even feel the legs of, of a man, my legs, anymore. And somehow I, I crossed the finish line after four and a half hours of running. And the point is, I mean, that was for me nine years ago. Uh, my body has only gotten worse since then, and I, I think that the general trajectory is down. I'm, I might be able to hold off a little bit by, by exercise. My wife's telling me to exercise more. Uh, our bodies fail us. Our, our, our armies cannot provide us with ultimate security. The president cannot provide us with ultimate peace, uh, whether it's our job or, or, or our families. All of these things will one day fade away. Why would we hope in anything other than God to sustain us? I love this phrase. Look at verse 11. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him. Not the Lord tolerates. Uh, not the Lord sort of forgives out of obligation. Not the Lord puts up with the way that I put up with slow internet because i got to get my email done. He delights in us. He rejoices over us with singing, we hear, in Zephaniah. And he rejoices in those who fear him. And by fear, he doesn't mean when we feel like scared of a spider or, or scared of heights. This is a full-orbed response of awe and respect to God's majesty. Like standing before Niagara Falls in wonder. And we have this joyful respectful wonder at God because we've tasted his steadfast love. One of the richest phrases in all the Bible, in the Hebrew, that word refers to God's covenant, promise-keeping faithfulness, his endless mercy. And how have we tasted this endless mercy? We have tasted it in Christ. We have come to know his steadfast love through Jesus. So I pray that God would make Arlington Baptist a church full of people who trust, not in horses, not in chariots, not in presidents or armies or jobs, but in God. I pray that this will be a church where you get to know one another and have rich, solid friendships where you can see how other people are trusting God in their situation and learn from that in your own life. Sometimes our best examples of solid hope in God are those that actually, according to the world standards, would seem to be weak. Uh, those who may be more old or advancing years, widows or children or the unemployed. These sorts of folks are often our strongest examples of hope in God. The, the wisdom of the world is not like the wisdom of our God. Look to others. Learn how to hope in him. If you're having a hard time hoping in him, tell that to someone here that you trust. Have them pray for you and help them on in this uh, journey. We praise God for his strong comfort. We praise him because he sustains us with his care. One of the ways he does that is through the body of Christ. Uh, and as we reflect on all of this, we should ask ourselves, how? How is it that God achieves this strong comfort and this sustaining care in our lives? And that leads us to point three. We praise him, number three, for his sovereign command. Verses 12 to 20 show us that God does all this by the power of his effective word. Look at verse 12. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. And praise your God, O Zion. For he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of the wheat. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. 
Earlier we saw God comforting the exiles as they returned. And now we see him blessing them in the rebuilt Jerusalem. The capital city was on, located on top of Mount Zion. He gives them security. He blesses their children. He gives peace at the border. Uh, abundance of food in every kitchen. He talks about the finest of wheat here. We've got to remember, these are all blessings these people did not deserve. They had rebelled against God. And he doesn't just forgive their sins or wipe the slate clean. He lavishes upon them grace upon grace. And notice he provides all these blessings by his command, by his word. All God needs to do is speak, and the gates of Jerusalem are strengthened. Just a single word of his command, and there's food for every home in Israel. Of course, it's the same with us. It is by God speaking, by his decree, that we enjoy every blessing we have from his hand. Now, a question comes up, right, as we think about these physical, material blessings that are described here in the Old Testament. Should we as believers expect these things today, looking at things like peace and food and, and prosperity? Should we expect every single blessing we ask for to sort of come rolling down from heaven toward us like a cosmic vending machine. But what we need to remember is God's doing something special through Old Testament Israel. He called out a unique nation through whom he would bring about the Messiah. That Messiah has now come. That was a specific people in a specific geographic place. But now through trust in Christ, God's people is made up of Jew and Gentile. And we are located in no particular geographic place. And what we see as we look in Scripture is that these old covenant blessings of peace and prosperity, ultimately they pointed forward. They were a signpost to the greater spiritual peace and prosperity that we all now know through faith in Christ. And ultimately they point forward even farther still to the final peace and prosperity that we will enjoy in the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Zion. So... The reason I'm saying this is because I want you to understand, if you turn on the TV and you see a preacher, or if you visit a church and the guy in the pulpit tells you that Christianity is all about material blessings in this life, run away. That's not what these verses are saying. The Bible doesn't teach that. The, the point of this text, you see the first word of each phrase? He. He's the one who strengthens. He's the one who blesses. He makes peace. He fills you. God is the one who's sovereign to give us gifts. And he gives them in his timing and for his purposes, which is a very good truth. Because if we were to just always get whatever we ask for from God, we don't know what to ask for. We don't know what our own needs are. Ah, but we trust in one who knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows what we really need. And the point is not that we get whatever we ask for. Of course, we ask him for what we need. He tells us to do that. And we ask in faith. We are waiting on him to provide but the point is not that we somehow activate his blessings through positive thinking. The point is that he is good. He is sovereign. And he blesses us as he sees fit. Whether the answer to our prayer is yes or no. Or simply not now. John Newton said it well. All shall work together for good. Everything is needful that God sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. The point is we're not in control of the universe. God is. Look at verse 16. 
He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. So we saw earlier God sending the tender rains that water the earth. And now we see that he's in charge of these ferocious storms as well. So when God brings the ice and the hail, that's a reminder of his unapproachable justice and purity. You see the psalmist say, who can stand before his cold? The thought of approaching God outside of faith in Christ should be truly bone-chilling to us. But yet, this is also a God who shows kindness to the world. We see that he merely speaks and brings the warm winds that turn winter into spring. In fact, I wonder, has your heart been cold to God lately? If God can end the chill of winter with a single word, surely he can melt your hardened heart as well. Turn to him. Isaiah 55, my word shall not return to be empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. We're seeing a picture here of God's powerful and effective word, and God inspired the biblical authors to write his word down. So we now have his word in the Bible. What a wonderful privilege that we can read this word and be changed by it. It brings us to life, and it brings us more holiness as we walk with God. Uh, our daughter Lena is adopted, and when we finalized her adoption a couple of years ago, we had to go down to the courthouse in D.C., Judiciary Square. And we went, and we provided all this paperwork, and there was a judge there, and she looked it all over, and she then made a proclamation. She spoke it, and then she issued us this written verdict, and she stamped it with her seal. And by that judge's word, Lena became fully and legally part of our family. And what a wonderful day that was. It was neat for me to think about how this judge is vested by our society with that power to make that proclamation. And yet I thought about it, you know, when she goes home at night, her, her word doesn't have the same authority or effectiveness. Like if she's hungry and she's in the kitchen and says, I want a turkey sandwich, it doesn't just magically appear. Obviously, her word is only effective in certain contexts, the way that we've set up our legal system. But it's not so with God. Whatever he proclaims happens. When he declares that we are adopted as part of his family, it is so. And the psalmist has this truth about the power of God's word in mind when he gives us our final contrast. You look at verses 19 and 20. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. Now, I, I, I want to recognize that this may at first seem like a bit of an odd way to conclude this happy psalm, right? Is this a sort of ancient Near East trash talk? Like, we've got God's word and you guys don't? That's not what's going on here. The psalmist is recognizing that they are only who they are because God has graciously revealed himself to them. God's the boss. He doesn't have to reveal himself to us, and yet in love, he speaks, and he called out this particular nation, Jacob, also known as Israel. And so that is a privilege of grace 
that they didn't deserve. And the psalmist is grateful for it. And guess what? It's the same with us. In God's good kindness, he has brought his word to you. In fact, that's true of you even now if you're sitting here. This is the first Christian sermon you've ever heard. Know that that is a kindness of God to you. That now you are hearing his word preached. But there's also a responsibility that comes with that. To respond. To respond in belief and faith to what you hear. By God's grace, just like Israel of old, he has now made us as the people of God stewards of his word. He calls us to go proclaim this good news of Christ and make disciples of all nations. And we can have confidence that when we do that, when we proclaim his word, it's effective. So if you're sharing the good news about Jesus with a family member or a colleague, the reason that God saves people is not because you were so eloquent or because you you figured out just the right argument to answer their questions. No, it's because God is powerful and he delights to work miracles and save sinners like you and me. There is a uh, woman who's a member of our church in Washington, D.C. She's in her 70s. She's been a member there since the 50s or 60s. Uh, Her name is Maxine. You may have even heard of her. She's a little bit famous around D.C. And we often have her pray on Sunday nights in our prayer meeting for the preaching ministry of the church. We'll ask her to just pray for the, the every week sermon that happens. And whenever she prays for this, she seems to cite in her prayer a great verse about this. Jeremiah 23, 29. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Well, Maxine knows that that verse is true because she has been watching for decades God's word go out, and she's seen God turn hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. So she believes God's word is effective. That even affects the way that she prays. She prays that his word would be powerful as it is proclaimed in our pulpit. So my question for you is, do you believe this? Do you trust the power of God's word? If you're here this morning and you're just investigating Christianity, perhaps you're not sure if you would consider yourself a follower of Jesus, if you've got any free time in this upcoming week, let me just suggest to you the best way you can spend that free time is study God's word. Expose yourself to it. Try to figure out what it's saying. Write down your questions. It's okay if not everything makes sense at first, but God's word is clear. You should be able to understand it. Uh, Talk to someone here, maybe the friend that's brought you. Talk to them about your questions about the Bible. I think you're probably surrounded by about 100 folks who would love nothing more than to do a Bible study with you. But here's my warning. Watch out. Because once you start reading God's word, you might find, just like the other hundred folks here, that this word will turn your life upside down in the best way imaginable. We praise God. We've seen his work in our lives. He's given us strong comfort. He's given us sustaining care. And he's done all this through his sovereign command. So what do you think? Is there anyone in charge of the universe? And does he care? That's really the question that plagued a guy named Mez McConnell when Mez was 13 years old. He had endured already a lifetime's worth of suffering and more by that age. Uh, Neglect, abuse, horrific sin. And then even at that point, his social worker, who was trying to help him sort through his issues, actually committed suicide. And it was at this point that Mez writes in in his autobiography, his 
book is called Is Anybody Out There? He writes, that was the first time I consciously questioned life. I began to question my own mortality. I thought I believed in God, but who was God? What did he have to do with me? What had he ever done for me? Was there a reason for all this madness? Uh, and sadly, life got worse after this point. Uh, drug addiction and crime led to serving time in prison. And yet, God was sovereignly orchestrating everything, even in the midst of all this chaos. Mez somehow, in God's providence, came across a bunch of Christians who were playing soccer, or football, as he would call it. This was in the UK. They invited him to play. They befriended him. They took the time to get to know a guy that the world would seem to have little use for. And then when Mez was back in prison later, they actually drove hours to visit him, and just hang out with him. Uh, they introduced him to the Bible. So Mez decided at some point to read the scripture. Probably didn't seem like much to him, but oh boy, he opened up God's effective word. He started reading Genesis 1, and then he encountered the good news of Christ. And one day he writes, I just sat looking at a flower, a simple daisy it was. I suddenly realized that this flower didn't get here by accident. It was created. It was quite clearly designed and perfect in every way. God was a reality that I had to face. And at that point, he repented of his sin. He trusted in Christ. Now, many years later, he actually pastors a church in Scotland. So you do see how God's sovereign command over creation, even that daisy, right? Having that daisy be there right at that time. And God's tender care for his children. It all comes together in Mez's story. And I wonder if in any way that has been your story. Have you seen God's care and his command? Of course, a story like Mez's story does remind us that we're not going to be able to answer every question in this life about why we experience some of the trials that we do. We see in a glass dimly, the Bible says. We don't know all now. In heaven, we will know fully as we've been fully known. And yet, Psalm 147 calls us to look, nonetheless, to look at the fingerprints of God's providence. Look and see the tender rains falling to the earth. Marvel at the power of the storms and the ice. Look as God feeds the hungry, as he brings his people back from exile. Not, and don't just look at the things that he's done in history. Look at his character. Look at him as he cares for those who trust in him, as he provides for their needs. Watch, even in this church, as he binds the wounds of brothers and sisters in Christ. Look at what he's done, his strong comfort, his sustaining care. And don't even stop there. Look even further on to Christ as he hangs on the cross, as he is exiled from the presence of God so that we might be welcomed in. Look to Jesus and in his suffering, see God's sustaining care of you. In his death, look at the one who was pierced so that your greatest wound could be restored. Look at the one who, who didn't just die for you, but who conquered death. And look at his resurrection. And in his resurrection, see God's command over death and life. 
and life eternal and put your hope in his steadfast love. And then don't just look to Christ, but as our psalm says, sing, make melody, praise the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do offer you praise and exaltation for the goodness of your plan and the wonder of your grace and how you have worked in Christ to restore us. Lord, we recognize we do not deserve to be in your presence at all. And we praise you that you have brought us out of our exile. We thank you that you have made a way for us through Christ to know you and to be filled with your presence now by your Holy Spirit who gives us the words and the desire to praise you and give you the glory that you deserve. We pray that you would be glorified as this great and sovereign and sustaining God. And we pray that you would show your care and comfort for those here who may be struggling. Oh Lord, would you bind up their wounds Would you remind them of your goodness that you've shown us in Christ? And would you receive all the praise for it? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.